This is because you already had a background in winemaking before? I didn't have any background <laughs> in winemaking. <laughs> Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. You probably know by now that this podcast is called Mosaic of China because each guest in a season represents a tile that is connected by introduction from a guest tile in a previous season. That's how this mosaic is being built out. One introduction, one connection, one episode at a time. What this also means is that not only do I have little control over which person will be introduced to me by a previous guest, I also don't know where in China they're going to be located. Today's episode with Bertrand Christot took me to perhaps the most surprising location that I've ever visited in China, to the extent that the place truly masquerades as an extra guest in the show. For this reason, let me remind you before we start that you can see the photos that accompany the interview online. Just search for Mosaic of China or Oscology on social media. Or head to mosaicofchina.com where you can also follow the transcript for today's show, if English isn't your first language. Finally, there's a video version of the show on YouTube, where you can hear the interview, see the visuals, and also follow the captions to the show, all at the same time. With that in mind, let's start the show. I am here with Bertrand Christot, and I wonder how I would describe you. How do you describe yourself? Uh, I have been uh, working in China nearly all my life. In fact, I have uh, two companies. The first one, uh, assisting French companies to make business with China. The second company makes wine in the Tibetan place of Yunnan, near to Tibet. And uh, that's why we are today. Exactly. And maybe people listening can already notice the sound quality is a bit different to the usual episodes because I have come to Yunnan, to the village where you have your vineyard and your winemaking operations. And we are sitting in a lovely hotel that you have helped to book for me. And we have set up this studio with a table and my suitcase on top. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What object did you bring that in some way represents your life here in China? So I made it quite simple. I brought a bottle of wine, our new white wine. We just started in 2018 to make white wine. And this is our first vintage. So even the label is still not the official label. Excellent. Can you please explain whereabouts in Yunnan we are? We are maybe 60 kilometers from Tibet. We are also, I think, 50 kilometers from Myanmar, so really in the northwest corner of Yunnan. Dutsing is a three hours drive from Shangri-La already, and here we are one hour more drive from Dutsing, down the upper Mekong Valley to this small village of Tsejong, known for its church. French missionaries arrived here 150 years ago, planning to evangelize Tibet, but every time they went to Tibet, they were pushed back either by the Chinese or the Tibetan. So they, they set up here on the opposite side of the Mekong River so that it was easier and they could develop. When they built the church in Sejong, they started a vineyard. Probably this is the older one vineyard in China now. Interesting. So 
Why was the vineyard so closely connected with the Christians who came? Because uh, during the Mass we need wine, which represents the blood of the Christ. At that time they were importing the wine from France, but it took a very long time, it was very expensive, so they decided to make their own wine. And uh, we have one plot now next to the church in Sojong, which is uh, the grapes coming from France, which very interestingly, in fact, no more exist in France <laughs> because we had the phylloxera in France oh. and uh, the old varieties all died in France. So this is probably the only place in the world where we can still find these grapes. What's the variety called? They call it uh, Rose Honey which is uh, only a local name. And in fact, uh, I believe that uh, they took this name from other places in China, which was uh, also probably other varieties brought by the French missionaries. Right. In this really remote area, we have this little corner of French culture. <laughs> yes, exactly. When I, I first arrived here, that was in 2012. So we started to walk uh, three hours. We stopped in a, a small... Uh, house in the mountain where some farmers were taking care of their cows and suddenly we had a smell which is a typical French smell and they were preparing a beef soup exactly as we do in France. Wow. So maybe the missionaries teach them how to prepare this beef soup. Also we still have one person remaining who learned French with the missionaries. He's 94, 95 years old now. Uh, he can still speak some French. He can also uh, sing uh, French songs. <laughs> Another thing funny is that mostly the local people are Catholics. Some have Chinese names, but most have uh, Christian names. So we can see a lot of José or Joseph, Agatha, Maria, Anna, Helena. Yeah. What percentage of the people in this village are still Catholic? Uh, Sejong has around 2,000 people. So they have roughly 60% Catholics and 40% Buddhist. When we say Catholics, some are going to the Mass regularly, some are not going, are only Catholics by tradition. In the Tsuku, the place where we have our cellar, it is maybe 97% Catholics. Mm. It is quite unique to have a Tibetan Catholics, because usually Tibetans are all Buddhist. Wow. There are Tibetan Catholics in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you also Catholic then? I, I am also, and that is one reason why I came here. In fact, I'm reading a lot of books about missionaries in China. And one of these books was written by Father Dubernard, who was a father here. I, I thought that this book was very interesting, and it was a very special place in China. Yeah. Some people had houses, but some still were living in caves. So that was a very wild place. So I wanted to visit, but I couldn't find the place because all the names of the places they, they mentioned were all in Tibetan. And uh, on the maps, you only have the Chinese names. Right. Now you don't have the Tibetan name. So I gave up. But in 2012, I received an email from somebody I don't know who told me there's a project that needs your help in a small Tibetan village in Yunnan. Immediately, I thought, that is the place I'm looking for. So I immediately answered him, okay, thank you, I will go to visit and to check this project. And so uh, during the summer, I came here with my daughter and uh, I loved the place, really. So from that time, I came here every year. And in 2014, 
a French guy who was here before I arrived set up the wine project. He proposed that I participate in the project, so I invested a little and I took over in 2017. This is because you already had a background in winemaking before? I didn't have any background <laughs> in winemaking. I am from Burgundy. Okay. And my grandfather had a small vineyard. So when I was young, uh, I spent all the summers in his place playing in the vineyard. Uh, sometimes he asked me to help to clean the bottles, to bottle the wine. So I, I did some, but uh, I never thought at that time that one day I will uh, end up uh, making wine. What actually is your background? Uh, I am an engineer. Okay, I can see it now. So you had at least the childhood stories of being in vineyards, you have the China connection, and you have the scientific mind. Like It's like this was meant to be, Bertrand. Yeah. Well, you know what? You said engineer. That made me remember the person who referred me to you from last season, mm, which was Vladimir. Exactly. Let me play you this. Bertrand Christo, he has arrived in China 20 years before me. Most interestingly, he has recently opened a vineyard. Ah. And I'm really looking forward to hear Bertrand next year. Uh, we are from the same school in France. Ah. We have an alumni association. So I knew him through the alumni association. He was one of the first from the school to set up in Shanghai. I was the first to set up in Peking. Aha. So after when I came to Shanghai naturally, I met him and we started to develop the alumni session together. Got it. Okay, so you were in Beijing. So what is your background in China? Can you give me the short version? Okay. During my engineering studies in France, I started to learn Chinese. Everybody in the family was always saying that I was very similar to my father which upset me a lot. <laughs> so that is very different from what my father did. So I think that's a new opportunity to discover new things. And my father went to many countries in the world, but never came to China. Okay. So that was something I could do that he didn't <laughs> do before. This whole thing is just a competition against your father, isn't it? <laughs> yes, at the start that was, in fact. So I arrived in Peking the first time in 1980, only for six weeks learning in the university. And I loved it too much. So I decided that I have to come back. First, I took one year holiday. I went to Africa to take some time because when we study, we don't have a lot of time. And after this year in Africa, I came here first as a student in 1982. That's where I met my wife also, mm -hmm. who is a Pekingese. <laughs> and I started to work in 1983 in a, a small company, which uh, later I bought. And now I am the only owner of the company. Wow. And so then you moved to Shanghai. That was much later, was it? Yes. My two children were born in Peking. In 1987, just after my son was born, we went to France. I was still working in the same company, but I was in the head office. Before we married, my wife never went out of Peking. So we went back to France for three years. Then uh, I moved to Hong Kong for one year. From Hong Kong, I moved back to Peking. I stayed six years there, then back to France again, <laughs> eight years in France. Then I moved to Shanghai. Right. Well, but Beijing, then, Shanghai, Hong Kong and France, right? Yes. That's, that's how you've shuttled in the last 20, 30 years, right? Yes. And your children, obviously, they're half French, half Chinese. Yes. 
Well, let's pivot back to the wine because I'm still looking at your object here, which is the bottle of, you said it was your new white wine, right? Exactly. What goes into making this wine here in this village? Our brand is a Xiaoling, which means uh, clouds in the mountains. At the start, we were buying the grape from the farmers, but to make good wine, you need low yield. Really? I so, did not know that. Okay. Yes, we call it uh, green harvest. But the farmers want to maximize the yield. So after two years, we decided that it's better to take care of the vineyard from the start. So we changed to renting the vineyard, but we rent the vineyard with the manpower. The farmers work by themselves on their own vineyard. Right. And uh, they learn very fast. They, they understand very quickly and they know how to do it. So we have around uh, 25 families working for us. All are very small plots, maybe uh, 1.6 mu per plot, which is one-tenth of an hectare. Mm. And it's not in a contiguous area. These are plots which are spread around the village, right? Uh, not only spread around the village, spread around many villages. We are in a region which is very particular and very unique in all the world, I think. We are at a latitude where usually you cannot grow vines. But as we are at high altitude, we are around 2,000 meters, we have weather which is quite similar to France weather. Right, because we're higher but also more southern. Exactly. Right. So we have same quantity of grain in one year, but not at the same time. Except of that, it's very similar. So we grow, in fact, French varieties and it is very successful. All the villages are completely different microclimates. Some are facing south, some west, east, north. The soil is different, sometimes very steep, sometimes less. Some are higher, lower. If you have one degree difference, you will have a different wine. It will not be ripe at the right time. But you do have all these differences. You have these different plots. Yes. So do you blend them together to make your wine or do you have separate distinct wines which represent different plots? We blend it. That is uh, Bordeaux style, in fact. But as we have quite strong Burgundy roots, we want to develop the Burgundy style. Single vineyard wines, one each in different villages, so that we can show the difference between the villages. So each village then can have ownership of what they create and they can have their own pride in their village and what the village makes, which I guess is a great legacy from all those years ago. That's what we expect to have, yes. I would like really to develop this region like Burgundy. This is the only place in China we have this idea and probably the only place in China we can do it. Because, for example, in Ningxia, which is the biggest wine production region, they have hundreds of hectares of similar land. Let's move on to the actual drinkers of the wine. So we've talked about the creation of the wine. How popular is wine amongst the Chinese themselves? Mm. When I arrived in China in the 80s, we nearly only had uh, white alcohol during all the dinners. Baijiu, yeah. And uh, the government pushed a lot for uh, developing wine, which is better for the health. At the start, it was very few. We had dynasty. <laughs> And uh, Great, Great Wall. Wall. Great Wall. That was the two best known ones. And finally, it has been developed more. But Chinese governments always think when they want to develop an industry, they think big. So uh, the smallest winery should have at least uh, 100 hectares or even 500 hectares. That's not what we have in France. That's not what we want to do here. Mm. But the wine has become more and more popular. 
more and more when we have banquet, we, we have a wine instead of a baitio. Right. The market is now quite big. As a producer, China is now the second producer of grapes in the world for wine, but also for food. For wine drinking, I think now China is uh, four or fifth in the world mm. as a country, mm. which compared to the population is still very low. So a, a lot of people think that it's a great business for the future because Chinese people probably will drink more wine and this may increase a lot uh, consumption, let's just say. Exactly. I guess the issue is you are going to always have a problem competing with Ningxia where they do have scale. Here you'll never have scale, but that's the idea, yeah. right? But I don't see them as competition. They make wine starting from 100 yuan. Very few reach 6 or 700 yuan. That is our level. Okay. So uh, that's not the same wine quality and not the same wine. So people who know better wine, then they will come for us. And we are fully competitive, quality speaking, with the best Ningxia wines. Mm. If I was a wine expert, I would have already asked you about all the different variants and how you pick it and what weather and what temperature. I'm glad at least that I know the cultural background of what you've done here. And it's certainly been fascinating for me to see it with my own eyes. So thank you so much, Bertrand. You're welcome. We will move on to part two. Ah, okay. Okay, we are now at the part where I ask the 10 questions. So question number one, brought to you by Shanghai Daily. What is your favorite China-related fact? Uh, I would say, do you know where in China you can find bullfight? Bullfighting. Bullfighting, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's around here. Exactly. Really? Tell That's, me about that. Uh, we have in Deqing, in autumn and during the winter, as there's nothing much to do, they will organize uh, between the farmers fights between their bulls. Wow. And in fact, they will raise special bulls for fighting. So that's a yak bulls. Huh? Recently, one winning bull has been sold 300,000 yuan. Amazing. Question number two, which is brought by Rosetta Stone. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Before, when I was in China at the start, my favorite one was mayo. Mayo. <laughs> mayo is there is no. No, we haven't got it. We right? haven't got it. At that time, a lot of things were missing. For when you went to the restaurant, you order from the menu, mayo. You <laughs> want to buy etiquette, mayo. So that was the most common and probably the first phrase every foreigner knows in China. <laughs> Another one is mama hu Horse, horse, tiger, tiger. It's, uh, how we say in English, it's uh, roughly like that. Or yeah. It's estimating, right? It's estimating. just about. I like both of those. And in fact, those answers connect you to previous episodes of the show. Ah, okay. Because Mayo was also chosen by Emily Madge in season one. She was working at the Shanghai Aquarium and she had to export two beluga whales from Shanghai to Iceland. Oh. And she had to deal with the red tape and many questions that she asked the officials. She got the answer, mayo. <laughs> and the second one, Mama Huhu, that was chosen in season two by the curator Zhang Yuan. He's the only Chinese person that I've heard use that phrase. Whenever I hear Mama Huhu, it's usually a foreigner yeah. because it's a favorite among foreigners. So I'm glad that there is a non-Chinese person who has chosen it because I think it's a very popular phrase among non-Chinese. Mm-hmm. Question three, what is your favorite destination within China? 
Now it's certainly here. When I say here, it's the Mekong Valley, but even more Salwen Valley. I am now planning to retire here. Uh, retirement means probably not full-time here. I will certainly go back to France sometime, but uh, I would like to have my base here. Before I came to this region, the place I prefer in China was uh, Quilin. Do you mean like Yangshuo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I say Quilin, it's not the city of Quilin. I have no interest. But not only Yangshuo. Yangshuo, yes, it's a very small village and nice landscape. People are nice also. North of Quilin, there's another place. It's named Pingan, where they have a lot of rice paddies, which is also very, very nice. I hope people don't go there because it sounds like it's still a little bit of a secret. I think... Uh, it's already popular. It becomes more popular mm-hmm. now, yes. Thank you. Next question. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? What I would miss the most probably is the Chinese food. Petting roast duck. Of course. Beijing kaoya. Yeah, petting kaoya, yeah. I actually haven't had that in years. Do you ah. know a good place you have it in Shanghai as well, Yes, right? yes, yes. Yes, probably the best place to have a kaoya in Shanghai is a tadong kaoya. Uh, another one is a yawang, which is not bad also. And what about the thing you would miss the least? When we make a joke, the Chinese very often they do not understand. Oh, yes. And that's what also one thing that I like here in the northwest corner of Yunnan. Here the people joke like Europeans. Really? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's Tibetan. I see that very often they upset Chinese Han because the Han do not understand how they joke. But for us, it's very natural, in fact. Isn't that funny? Yes, my jokes go nowhere with most Chinese people. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I should be moving here as well. <laughs> sure. That's great. Thank you. Next question, which is brought to us by Smart Shanghai. Where is your favorite place to go out, to eat or drink or hang out? I do not have a favorite place. When I go to a restaurant, I will always order the dishes I don't know. My wife will always order the dishes she knows the best. Yes. To avoid any risk. <laughs> but so so I, I don't have a place I will uh, often go regularly, no. I, I always uh, want to try new things. The next question. What is the best or worst purchase you have made in China? I, I will tell the best one, which is a small stick, like a small spoon, to clean the ears. <laughs> I never saw that in France before. But in fact, I find it very useful. Yes, it has the scraper, right? So you yes, can... the kind of scraper, yeah. Yes. That is a funny one. I first saw it in Japan. So oh, yeah. one side was the cotton bud and the other side was the spoon. Because they do say that putting the bud in your ear is bad for the eardrum because yes. you can very easily go too far. Exactly. So this one you can really scratch out. It sounds gross, but it is clever, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What is your favorite WeChat sticker? So I, I am uh, influenced by the region we are now. It is a guy who welcomes uh, guests with a white, how we say? Uh, I guess it's a scarf. Scarf, yeah, a white scarf, yes, I forgot the name. That is a tradition in Tibet. When you receive a guest, you will give him a white scarf. Written aside it, Jassi Dele, which is a way Tibetan will say to, to welcome people. Okay. And when do you send a sticker? When I want to say hi to somebody or thank you 
It has a lot of meanings, in fact. Ah, so. so it's a bit like shalom in Hebrew or... Yes, exactly. Aloha in Hawaii. That's useful. And how do you say it again? Jassi de l'eau. Jassi de l'eau. Yes. I can see it, but it's written in the Chinese Hansi. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's in Chinese. Right. Thank you. Next question. What is your go-to song to sing at KTV? I never sing at KTV. You've never been once? Uh, I've been sometimes, but I never sung. You've never sung? No, because uh, my songs are not right. <laughs> and my wife now forbid me to sing. So <laughs> I have a good excuse. You must have sung in front of her. When did you sing? Uh, at church. Mostly ah. at church. Yeah. And she laughs when she hears me singing. That's great. And so you still go to church every week? Uh, roughly, when I can. I cannot really every week. But uh, in Shanghai, we have uh, Mass in French. When I'm here, I go to the Mass here, which is uh, partly in Tibetan and partly in Chinese. Wow. And are there any similar songs? No, they are different. But they sing or they chant as well? Ah, they sing a lot. They always sing. Tibetan people love to sing. Very often they will sing at home. They have a kind of instrument. Oh, like an erhu. Which is a, like an erhu. They call it, I think, swanza here. I think every man in the village can play it. And they have groups, so they will... Uh, very often at evenings, be together. The man plays, the women will sing. Who needs KTV, right? Yeah, they don't need KTV in that case. <laughs> I think it's much better than KTV. There you go. Well, Bertrand, thank you. We talked about business. We talked about wine. We talked about religion. Yeah. Uh, we could have talked about a whole lot more, but I really appreciate your time. Next time, I hope I can spend a longer time here. I hope you can also, and you can discover this fantastic place. The time here is fully different from the time we have in Shanghai. We can yes. live slowly and profit of the place. Yeah? Yes. And before we finish, the only thing I would ask you is, out of everyone you know in China, who do you recommend that I interview for the next season of Mosaic of China? Okay, I, I've been thinking of this question and I, I recommend you uh, somebody that in fact I don't know for a long time. His name is uh, Stéphane. Stéphane Chanu. This guy arrived in my life two months ago. He was introduced by a friend. He is a general manager of GC Deco in Shanghai. Ah, the advertising company. Yes, advertising company. And uh, last year he started to learn making wine. Ah, okay. So he follows an online course. I like the people who always will think out of the box, as we say, and want to start new things. Well, I look forward to meeting Stefan. If you could ask him one question, what question would you ask Stefan? Will you change your life and start a winery? Okay, then that's the question that I'll ask him too. Thank you so much, Bertrand. And that's all from the village of Tsejong. Except if you're watching the video version of the podcast where you're getting a little extra treat because I'm right now including a clip from the bullfighting that Bertrand mentioned in part two of our chat. It's very different to Spanish bullfighting because the bulls are in the ring with each other rather than with a matador. Let me also say that I'm including it as a cultural curiosity specific to this region of China. But I should add that neither Bertrand nor I personally condone this activity. The other place that you can see this video is if you're a supporter of the podcast on Patreon, where I've included it as an attachment in today's release, along with an extended version of my interview with Bertrand. 
As with every episode, there's an average of 10 extra minutes of conversation per show in the premium version of Mosaic of China. Here are a few clips from today's. It's easy to make wine, but difficult to make good wine. Right. I am pretty sure we don't have the right variety for each plot. So we'll give them monkey brain to eat so that they will be agile like uh, monkeys. <laughs> we need many years to experiment, 10 or 15 years. They found a winemaker in Switzerland, so they started the Serling project. Hoyun is from the LVMH group. They are 60 kilometers from here. So our 2015 vintage got the grade 93, the maximum is 100. Right. Studying what was the best place in China to make wine, and here is the best place. <laughs> if you're interested in other episodes with a connection to alcohol in China, be sure to check out my conversation with the distiller from Peddler's Gin, Fergus Woodward, in Season 3, Episode 3 or my conversation with the China general manager of the Belgian beer company Duvel Mortgat. That's Sean Harmon from Season 2, Episode 9. And for another episode where the location is also a star of the show, check out Douglas C from Season 2, Episode 15, the businessman working in another unique region of China, a small island off the coast of Ningbo. Funnily enough, there's a part in that episode where we also talk a little bit about people drinking wine instead of baijiu at business banquets. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, with artwork by Denny Newell. After the music, there's a very short catch-up with the person whose voice you heard earlier, the person who referred Bertrand to the mosaic, Vladimir Jurovic, from Season 2, Episode 13. And I'll see you back here next time. Hello, Oscar. Good morning, Vladimir. Thank you very much for joining the call. We are, of course, doing this remotely. Uh, for people who did not listen to our original podcast, you are the founder of Lab Brand, which is a branding consultancy. Yeah. I was thinking about you. Um, people who have heard our original episode would remember how much both of us are geeks when it comes to the naming side of your business. So naming brands who wanted to come into China, giving them Chinese names. What I was thinking of was there were a couple of brands that since our original episode have closed their doors basically in China. And I was thinking of uh, LinkedIn, Ling Ying. Does it affect you when something happens to a brand that you helped to name? I'm glad you didn't mention IBM from Airbnb, right? Yes. Because it's also of the recent news. I mean, yes. so, so the list goes and goes. And um, it's true that uh, we feel sad when uh, one of our clients or one of the brand that we created uh, is forced to stop some of the operation in China. Uh, but most of them, actually, the brand continues in terms of in the mind of Chinese customer, if not uh, having uh, operations in China. So what affects us is more the cut between uh, the West and China that uh, we observe. And we feel like we are a builder of bridge, you know, and we still hope that the words and the names will be very resilient in the brains of our Chinese audiences for those brands and that there, there will still be a bridge that can be uh, reused in the future. Uh, well said.
Um, the office and the business went very well during this period. Actually, we won our biggest project. We had more than 25 people working together to win a very complex project we're doing for the first time. Winning or losing it will have made a very different picture, but we ended up on the happy side of winning it. So it was good. We were lucky to find a way to not drop. Our biggest projects at the moment are about helping our clients to orchestrate complex experiences so that they create uh, lasting impressions to their customer, also to make them meaningful. Uh, so yeah, that's what keeps us busy. Right. Makes sense. And of course, that's something which as a consumer, I understand entirely. Well, thank you, Vladimir. I'm very glad that you were able to introduce me to Bertrand as part of this project. It means that you will forever be connected. Thank you, Oscar, for, for this chain of mosaics that you are forming here and weaving together. We are definitely connected. And I think this is very meaningful in this time to have this continuity and uh, this chain of humanity to reconnect, to, to invoke these connections and to feel the energy and, um, and the belonging that uh, we can get from it. You're definitely in the right business. You branded it much better than I could myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Vladimir.